This is Life After Berkeley. I'm Curtis Killian. On today's episode, I spoke with 1995 alumnus Taku Hirano, who has toured and recorded with Fleetwood Mac, Whitney Houston, Dr. Dre, John Mayer, Air Rahman, and Cirque du Soleil's Michael Jackson, The Immortal World Tour. He's also a producer and designer, having founded apparel company Third Culture and recording group Dow of Sound. You were born in Japan and grew up in California. California. What brought you to Berkeley? You know, I had been playing music since seven, piano from seven to nine, and percussion and drum set from nine on. I, on a whim, tried the five-week program my junior year, after my junior year of high school, and had some great teachers, and I realized that Berkeley was probably the best place for me to kind of be able to study both percussion and drum set and get kind of a well-rounded education. And then did you go right back to LA after graduating? I graduated in 95 and I spent a year kind of making a plan and saving money. So I was just kind of gigging around and, and uh, hanging out in Boston for a year. And then, um, and then I moved to LA in 96, kind of formulated what my plan would be and how, how to get out there and, and kind of survive at least for the first year or two, uh, which ended up being applying to do um, grad school out there. So I figured that would at least give me two years to of of a plan where I can uh, be in class during the day and then kind of hitting the scene at night, making my inroads into the whole LA scene, touring and studio. And what was your big opportunity after getting out there? I got out there and um, actually two weeks after I started my grad school, I got an offer to go on tour. It was through um, another alum, Lil John Roberts. And we had been friends for a long time. We entered Berkeley together uh, back in 91. So I'd known him since then. And we played together around town here in Boston. And so he was one of the people I called. I was like, I'm in LA. I know you don't live in LA, but just letting you know that I now live in LA. And he's like, I happen to be in LA and I'm in rehearsals for a tour with um, Tevin Campbell, who was an artist under Quincy Jones's label, Quest. And he just said, you know what? Bring some drums down, bring some congas down and um, come by our rehearsal and uh, jam with us, you know, one afternoon. So I did. And then later that day I got offered the tour, which is kind of unheard of, you know, that they'll actually open up the tour coffers to add one more person in the band, you know, and, and go out. So it worked out great. So would you say after that it was word of mouth or did it's, you? Yeah, it's word of mouth. Word of mouth, I mean, it wasn't just based off that tour, but I made a lot of great connections, met a lot of people. It, it kind of put me getting into the uh, LA scene kind of in hyperdrive. As far as making connections and word of mouth, yes, it was. it, it is all and it has been my entire career, word of mouth. So it seems like you have a, a very diverse resume, Bette Midler, the past decade or so. Yep. I saw you on a Dr. Dre album. Yeah. Um, Fleetwood Mac, <laughs> yeah. I mean, these are all very diverse acts. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a particular key to uh, inhabiting all these different spaces as, as a percussionist? Or? I mean, just being musical, you know, it's just having a handle on what would sound good. It's kind of sounds common sense, but that's really key. It's not, it's putting your ego aside and, and serving the music and being, you know, easy to get along with, being a good person on the road, you know, and being pleasant. All those types of things that seem very common sense are what really get you the work. Um, and it's always been instilled in me coming up as a percussionist and a drummer, like to know how to play every style, be familiar. I don't have to be an expert. I don't have to be the just best jazz drummer in the world. But the fact that like I really 
studied like hardcore jazz for many years like i have something to pull from if i'm going to be in that situation even if it's bet midler and we're doing the big band arrangement you know and i can actually think like a drummer and um stay out of the drummer's way or, or compliment the drummer or the entire band and just it's just about knowing genres of music so how'd you land one of the first major multinational tours fleetwood mac for instance fleetwood mac uh the, my first big big world tour was basically it was whitney houston and that came about uh, word of mouth. And by the time I got called for Whitney, it was about three years into living in LA. By that time I had been playing a lot of gigs and a lot of um, kind of TV show gigs where you know you get a last minute call to play on The Tonight Show with Brandy or something like that. And so I, was, I kind of um, built my name up playing percussion behind a lot of R&B, hip hop, pop stars and then that kind of um the musical director for whitney at the time ricky minor uh he and i had worked together on a couple different just small projects and so they were restructuring whitney's whole band and so i got the call so it's just kind of it's it you have to be there you know like some a lot of people tell me oh i want to move out to la and try it out for six months it's like you're not going to be able to you know get anything out of LA if you're only going to commit to six months you have to if that's where the work is at you got to go you go where the work is so um and so yeah it took me three years to get that first huge gig of a world tour so fast forward a couple years later to Fleetwood Mac uh, it's all about connections um the connections that you make um for off of that tour there's been like tour managers or production people or techs and I mean I'm friends with lots of people that aren't just on stage with me and so um, you know you get recommendations and so Fleetwood Mac came about um, the tour manager right off, right after Whitney I jumped to Lionel Richie I also Lionel for about three or four years and um, the tour manager for Lionel uh, also worked with Fleetwood Mac and so he put my name in the hat suggested me I went in kind of had an an audition period with Fleetwood where um, I rehearsed with them for three weeks. And on the fourth week, we actually did like a, a corporate show. Um, it was just like a five song show for the corporate sponsors of the world tour. And that, will, that, that was my audition, was three weeks seeing how I gelled with Mick Fleetwood and doing one gig. And then at that gig, as we walked on stage, Mick Fleetwood just put his arm around me, gave me a handshake. He was like, welcome to the band, welcome to the tour. So that's how I knew. So, you know, it's like you have to, um, it is connections. It's also a, a combination of playing what's right for the music. It's about getting along with everybody. It's about the connections. It's, you know, it's, it's a combination of all those things, all those factors that you have to, you have to have all that stuff together. If you want to be uh, successful. How have you seen the industry change over the years and how have you had to adapt uh, your particular business model for success? We're constantly adapting and we're constantly changing. So uh, I don't think there's one marked moment where I'm like, I'm going to change you know, my approach. Like I've always been kind of figuring it out. I think that obviously in this day and age with social media and the availability of YouTube, it's a great tool. It's a great tool to market yourself. Um, I don't necessarily actively go, oh, I'm going to put a video of myself on YouTube and hopefully that'll get me a gig. But I have noticed that like the awareness of me has multiplied like internationally amongst drummers and percussionists just because of social media. 
you know, people, for instance, like they go to my Instagram account and there's a handful of percussionists that are fans, like based in Bali. Like I, I, I've been to Bali once on like vacation, but I've never performed there. I've never performed in Indonesia on tour or anything, but it's like the awareness factor, it's so far reaching nowadays. So, I mean, it's something to think about as far as, um, depending on what you want to do. As far as touring and recording and whatnot, I can't say that I've necessarily gotten a tour based on social media, but the awareness is there. And then that's actually quite powerful. I'm, I think everyone's still trying to figure it all out as far as monetizing that though. Right. Yeah. yeah <laughs> From a music of, standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of changing more to a service model than a yeah. compensation for recorded output. Yeah. Yes. No, bit. definitely. And how has, how has technology uh, impacted your, uh, your workflow, your setup, if at all? Oh, it's hugely impacted me. I mean, like nowadays I'm seen as the percussionist who has integrated like electronic percussion with acoustic percussion. It's kind of the norm now you have to, but when I first got to LA in the um, late nineties, you know, there were percussionists who didn't even have any electronics in their rig. And there are percussionists that were kind of known as electronic percussionists, There's two or three guys. And they all got certain types of gigs, um, not to diss any of them, but a lot of them didn't have any traditional training. So a lot of them were kind of um, street percussionists, but had the whole sampling and triggering thing down. And so when I got to LA, I was like, I want to be the guy who has the traditional training, studied with Giovanni, studied West African percussion, Indian percussion, whatever, but also have the electronics thing together. And I said, I think that that is my entree into getting work. I could sound um, authentic, but I could also deliver the things to make, you know, a hip hop track sing live, you know? And so um, I didn't have any of that together at Berkeley because I, quite honestly, I couldn't afford any of the gear. So I always wanted to get into electronics. I didn't even take any like electronic percussion drumming classes really. So it just came down to necessity. I was on a gig uh, with an R&B artist and they're like, hey, we need hand claps on this song. I'm like, okay. So then I had to go out and just buy an, you know, a Roland SPD 10 at the time, an Octopad. <laughs> Got an 11. I'm yeah, sorry. I actually have that. <laughs> yeah. So I went out and just, you know, what money I had, I, I was like, I have to invest in this. And then, so I did it and then it just kept growing and the call started coming for more of that, more of that type of stuff. And I kept building my rig out. Yeah. So, so it's impacted me hugely. It's basically one of the um, things I've, in hindsight, that's what I branded myself on. Yeah. So. Very good. Yeah, I think the SPD 11 hand clap is my favorite yeah, <laughs> sound yeah, on exactly. the 33. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, that's funny. Uh, uh, memory that stands out at Berkeley. Uh, if oh, you so want to talk, memories. if you want to talk about like maybe like a teacher that had a you know particular impact on your trajectory or um, hmm, or an a experience. Lot of, yeah, I had a lot of great teachers. I mean, I have so many memories. I everything from my first year at Berkeley and walking into ear training class and going, wait, what? I have to stand up and sing in front of everybody? That like freaked me out. It was like, I don't, that's why I'm, you know, I'm in the back of the orchestra, that's it, or, or whatnot, you know? Um, it, so Berkeley was great for bringing me out of my shell in that sense, or at least putting me, taking me out of my comfort zone. Um, had some great teachers. I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to, um, 
study hand percussion with Giovanni Hidalgo for the four years he was here. Those, those are the four years that I studied with him. He arrived my second semester and then I graduated and he was still around for one more semester. So then I would just like hang out with him and take, you know, private lessons with him. I had already graduated. So I just, you know, would take lessons with him on the side. So I got what, eight semesters or 10 semesters worth of, of study with him for just the exact time that he was here. So that was fantastic. Um, Jamie Haddad was another great teacher. Um, uh, I had always wanted to learn frame drumming in Middle Eastern and North African percussion. And so, and as well as Indian and South Indian concepts in terms of uh, rhythmic structure and whatnot. And so he was my teacher for that. So, I mean, they left, both of them left an indelible mark on my playing in my career. Definitely. Seems like for every project you have to adapt a little bit. Can you speak a bit of like how you go into like the mindset of like, okay, now it's a Bette Midler gig. Uh huh. Now it's a Dre gig or Chromeo or whatever. Yeah. You know? yeah. You gotta, and it's all wildly different it stuff. Is. It's kind of, you have to walk in with a blank slate almost. At the same time, you also have your wealth of knowledge that you've amassed from gigs prior to that, whether they're something similar or not. So, um, you know, you just have to be ready to pivot. I got the call for Josh Groban. We were doing a bunch of dates where there was no drummer. So I was playing like a hybrid sitting on a cajon, but with a hi-hat and cymbals and a snare on like half of his set. And then the other part was like, I was playing timpani and whatnot. When I first got the call, I was like, oh, okay, cool. You know, I've been playing with Bette Midler for close to 10 years at that point. And it's like, oh, I'm sure the stuff is fairly similar. I've, I've sat in with Barry Manilow. So it was like, one would think it's kind of of the same type of music, um, but it was vastly different. It was it was closer to me doing a, a hybrid setup when I was playing with Leanne Rhymes, you know? So like, I definitely had to um, reset and just go, okay, this, this is not what I expected. So let me, let me just get in there and figure it out. So you have to kind of go in there like ready to pivot and just have an open mind of how you're going to tackle a situation, you know, especially as a percussionist, because if you're a drum set player, you're going to go in there with your kit. And then if you need some, a little extra piece for that gig, then you just add it to your regular kit. But sometimes with percussion, it's like, sometimes you have to actually build a rig for, for a gig specifically. So, right. so just having an open mind. <laughs> what was it like playing the White House? I saw you were directly behind President Obama in some of the great. shots. It uh, was great. Um, I actually, that was the second time I played the White House. And I, the first time I played the White House was the, for the first state dinner and the first, um, the first time around when President Obama first became president. And uh, that first time was with uh, A.R. Raymond. And he was just... Uh, gotten nominated for the Oscar for Slumdog Millionaire and then so he was kind of we were, we were doing a bunch of promo and um, that was the first state dinner for the Obama administration and they were hosting uh, the Prime Minister of India so we got called and so we did a performance there for the state dinner the second time was a couple years ago and it was a PBS um, TV special called uh, Women of Soul and that was awesome because we got to back up. It was a house band situation. We backed up a bunch of artists. I think we backed up Janelle Monet, Jill Scott, Melissa Etheridge, uh, Patti LaBelle, Ariana Grande. So 
it was fun just because you're getting to play all these great tunes and rehearse and spend time with all these great artists and stuff in that setting it was awesome yeah that was a fantastic yeah. special too it, yeah it seems like there's a number of other berkeley alumni within your spheres melissa etheridge and air ramon himself uh, yeah got yeah. an honorary doctorate recently yes i think that's still the most trafficked youtube video that we have Oh, really? He's got apparently legions of fans in India. Like, I was aware of him, and I even had the Slumdog Millionaire soundtrack before I got the call for the, the tour. And, um, but I had no idea, like, his record sales are, like, insane, you know? Like, he has, he's sold more records than, like, most pop artists, you know? In a country that there's a lot of pirating of, of recorded material, so, like, there's probably even more downloads and than what's actually um, logged. Right. You know, I think at the time we did the Slumdog tour. I mean, his record sales like far eclipsed like Mariah Carey, but people just had no idea. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, I think people were a bit surprised here. Yeah. I was aware with the, aware of the soundtrack yeah. material, but exactly, he doesn't have the superstar status here yet. Yeah, and Cirque du Soleil, you were on the Michael Jackson yep. Immortal tour. Yep, I was out for two years on that. Wow. It was a what, long run. What yeah. was that experience like incorporating with obviously dance and, and everything? Yeah, and, dance and acrobatics. Uh, it's interesting now, I, I'm sure you're aware Berkeley and uh, Boston Conservatory are merging. Yeah, yeah. So obviously there's a, a fine link between yeah. dance and music. Did that alter your setup or how you played at all? Um, not necessarily. For us as the band, first of all, it was like an honor to get a call for that because most of the band was comprised of people who had worked with Michael Jackson, whether in the studio or on tour or both. And Michael, leading up till up until This Is It, when Bashiri Johnson played percussion for that, Michael had never had a percussionist live on tour. So it was definitely an honor to get a call from Greg Villengaines. I had not met him before. And, you know, Greg was Michael's longtime musical director. He played keyboards on every Michael album, even posthumously, you know, so. Um, for that tour, actually, I mean, we were serving the music. We were playing all the Michael Jackson tunes. So it didn't necessarily affect us as much as um, one would think, given that there are so many dancers and, and you know, so much choreography going on. But they, they followed us, basically. Ah. Yeah. 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 We couldn't, you can't alter, you know, um, Michael Jackson's songs to, to fit something else you know you, you can't they yeah you can't just because the uh a dancer or an acrobat misses their cue in an in a in most like Cirque du Soleil shows then you'll just loop you'll loop for an extra four bars mm -hmm. until they hit their cue or something like that especially with like aerialists but for, for that show they're like no you know you guys have to follow we can't we're not going to alter Michael Jackson's music you know and add four bars into in the bridge because you 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 know miss something so so in that sense no i mean it, it we weren't totally affected but it was such a blast working with the michael jackson estate um that tour itself was basically it was a, um a collaboration between the michael jackson estate and cirque du soleil so the the band con contingency was basically part of the michael jackson camp meeting up with the cirque du soleil camp so having greg Gaines and jonathan Moffitt there, I mean, all the stories we hear about Michael, about tours, about the recording sessions was just awesome. And then we had access to all of the 
tracks, all the sessions, soloed, everything. Wow. So while we're getting ready for the tour, we could actually go to the, the multi-track session and listen. Everything from Jackson 5 all the way to, to when he passed. So if we're doing this, I want you back, we could actually solo. I could actually figure like solo the Congo track and listen to it. Never, that's unheard of. That's amazing. You know, <laughs> and basically like, we're like, okay, I'll cover this part. So then they'll mute it from the track because I'm playing it live. Or certain things like um, the snare drum on Beat It, it has such a distinct sound. So, you know, that need that had to have been triggered as opposed to just Jonathan Moffat hitting his regular acoustic snare drum. So they had like, I believe it was like a D drum trigger that was triggering the, the actual snare single shot from the album. So that one, that groove for, for um, Beat It or Billie Jean came on, it was like, you knew what song it was. So even getting to like play, I was playing the record scratches from Jam, you know? So they gave me the sample for me to trigger that stuff. I was like, oh, this is so insane. It was awesome. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. So I imagine a lot of tours you have to play with a click or, or to certain um, tracks or, or does it vary? It totally varies. Yeah. Totally varies. Bette Midler, no, not really. Cirque du Soleil, Michael Jackson, definitely everything was on the grid because the recordings of the soloed vocals of Michael Jackson were the singer in the show. So we had to be locked in. Ah. Yeah, so. That must have been a bit surreal. It was, yeah, yeah it was definitely. And how do you balance all the opportunities between touring, recording dates, production gigs, any other business opportunities you yeah. want to discuss? How do I balance it all? I mean, somehow it kind of works out. I've been fortunate that like, I haven't had too many conflicts between things. So as far as like what I'm juggling, yes, sometimes I'll get a call for a session or um, I work in doing drum clinics while I'm on the road sometimes, while I'm on tour. Um, I have a clothing line, I have a t-shirt line that I started randomly during the, the Cirque du Soleil tour. And so, you know, I'm dealing with that as well. It's, I mean, I just, on my way here, my phone buzzed, I looked and I was like, oh, okay, I got an email that has some orders. So I, when I get back, you know, I'm gonna have to, to talk to the warehouse and make sure those orders get fulfilled and, <laughs> and mailed out. So so it, it is a constant juggling act for sure. Yeah, I, I remember you mentioning that when you're here with Bette Midler uh, yes. last year. Oh yeah, and the, the, the brand is third culture style, 3RD culture, C-U-L-T-U-R-E style. How'd you come up with the uh, idea to get into the fashion industry, which is- I had no idea. That, that was a total fluke. I decided, so I have this um, motto that it's actually trademarked, it's try and keep up. And that's an anagram, uh, T-A-K-U, try and keep up. So I was like, oh, you know what? When I do these clinics while I'm on world tour with Cirque, why don't I get some try and keep up t-shirts made so that I could sell them in my drum drum workshops? So I had like, a, I just did it just kind of for fun. It wasn't like a money-making venture, it was just like something. Because anytime I do clinics, they're like, do you have any you know, product other than me signing the sticks at the the drum shop is selling themselves or whatever. So I was just like, yeah, let me get some shirts made. And all of my stock got bought out by all the dancers on the Cirque Tour, even before I sold one at a drum workshop. And basically um, all the dancers on that Cirque Tour were the top B-boys, B-girls, break dancers from around the world. And so they brought them home and then all of a sudden they're, you know, some of them came back and they're like, oh yeah, my crew back in wherever, Amsterdam, they want some shirts too. 
you know, because they all wanted to do battles and wear a shirt that says try and keep up against, you know, whoever they were battling. And then I was like, okay, so let me figure out like quickly how to set up some kind of online storefront where they can order it and I can fulfill it. And that's how it started. And then randomly, some other designs I did more geared towards women, um, all of a sudden got picked up by people who were more into like yoga, um, activewear type people. And then it got featured in uh, Shape Magazine and Fitness Magazine. So all of a sudden now, like I'm <laughs> going into this whole like athleisure line of clothing. So it's crazy. I had no idea. I wasn't even planning. I was like, all right, well, let me just keep doing it. Like, and see how far it goes. So it's chugging along, you know, it, I mean, um, like anything, uh, I, I definitely agree with the whole notion of 10,000 hours, you know? So, I mean, I'm still, I still have yet to log my 10,000 hours in the, in the fashion industry. So, you know, I'm just still building it while I'm still doing what I'm doing, you know? What's next for you? So right now, um, I'm trying to just take advantage of finishing up a, um, third album that I've done with my production partner uh, we're assigned to a Japanese label the group is called Dao Sound like T-A-O of Sound and so we finished our we actually finished our third album a little while ago and we're just kind of finishing up all the like the logistical stuff and getting all the all the um, video content artwork and all that together so that's what I'm doing right now immediately um, and as far as playing wise I got some projects coming up pretty soon kind of in the solo percussion um world percussion slash electronics type of thing so i'm getting getting a a small rig together and and i'm going to be doing some experimental stuff start starting out in new york uh and then probably taking over to the west coast I'm just kind of playing around I'm, I'm trying to be flex you know my creative muscles while i have the time right now <laughs> before i because if i get a call for a tour then that's going to lock me out for another three, six, 12 months where I, I'm busy working on someone else's music, so. So, uh, and then I just launched my website like two weeks ago or oh, something wow. like that. Oh, it's uh, takupercussion.com. Great. T-A-K-U-percussion.com. So that, uh, that was supposed to like go live and then I ended up getting, having to go do the Grammys and a bunch of stuff. So like that, that pushed that down like another four weeks before, you know, from, right. from my original launch date. So, so that's finally up. So that's kind of what I've been busy. Like, yeah. And did you ever get a call back? I know there was a eagerly awaited Dre album after 2001, but I guess it's the Compton. Oh, straight out of Compton. Ended up being the, the follow-up to that, you know, 2001 oh, right. album. Yeah. And I know fans were clamoring for You know, it. I think that they're, he's constantly writing and producing and stuff. I think it's just, um, yeah, I have no idea. Like. I'll find out because <laughs> I was actually when I played the Grammys and uh, this uh, ABFF BET uh, award show recently, I was playing alongside Trevor Lawrence, drummer who uh, does a lot of programming, works with Dre. He's he's always working with Dre. So and Dre keeps him busy. So he's definitely working on stuff. I, I don't know what what the next thing is for him, though. Well, thanks so much. Yes, this definitely. I had a great time. That was 1995 alumnus Taku Hirano. 
Today's music is Highland Highline from Dow of Sound's latest release, Ronin. Student Esteban Roa helped with sound. I'm Curtis Killian. Thanks for listening to Life After Berkeley. And be sure to visit alumni.berkeley.edu to hear more about the great things alumni are doing around the world.